On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what Yahweh has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to Yahweh. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to Yahweh. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And Yahweh said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what Yahweh has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness, when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before Yahweh, to be kept throughout your generations. As Yahweh commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the tenth part of an ephah. May the Lord bless the uh, application of his word to our hearts today. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord one more time that uh, we pray so that it's not Nick up here speaking. It's what God has worked in my heart through the week in preparation and that you get the Holy Spirit's work. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We do thank you for your word. We thank you for your plan of salvation. We thank you for the person of Jesus Christ that made it possible. And we thank you that, that the person of the Holy Spirit now indwells us and that the person of the Holy Spirit comes uniquely in this corporate setting to be with us and guide us. Please do so. Allow the words to penetrate our heart. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this is part two of uh, a sermon I preached a few weeks back. It's called Learning to Be a Set-Apart People. And I doubt because it's been uh, a little uh, while since I preached it. I want to say it's been five weeks, the first part. I doubt that you remember what we, what we dealt with. We read this same passage, and we looked at different components within this passage. And then today we're going to look at the, the end, the final portion of this. In the previous sermon, we dealt with, as, as it relates to learning to be a set-apart people, we dealt with a people who rely on God's sustenance, that which he provides. A people who live by God's commandments and demonstrate obedience. It's all found in the passage. And a people who embrace the bread of life, which we talked about was Jesus Christ, and we went to the New Testament to see that. <clears throat> well, today, the final aspect we're going to take on is the Sabbath itself. And I don't know what you've been taught about the Sabbath. I know what I was taught, and I know that as I read the Bible, I, I became unsure of, well, 
Do we observe a Sabbath? Did the Sabbath get done away with? Where does the Sabbath land? What's the wording we should use if we're, if we're New Testament believers? Is the Sabbath just a word for the Old Testament? Well, we've got Exodus 20 coming up. Exodus 20 are the Ten Commandments. God gives the Ten Commandments. In fact, if you heard in the, in the uh, prayer this morning by Lewis Bailey, the pilgrim, the, excuse me, the Puritan pilgrim is sometimes referred to. He, he mentioned that it was, this Sabbath was written by the finger of God because we know the Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God. The rest of the commandments were given by God through a mediator. But the Ten Commandments came directly from the finger of God etching them in stone. So what do we do with this? I mean, this seems like it's pretty important stuff. How do we know for sure? We've got certain uh, expressions of our Christian faith that hold to one thing and, and uh, uh, those that hold to another. Well, I thought, okay, I'm going to spend 10 weeks on the Ten Commandments, meaning that, or 10 sermons. We're going to hit every commandment in depth. So we're going to look at that systematically. We're going to take on, it's, when you think of systematic theology, the easiest way for me, I, I'm a visual person. I need pictures in my mind, or they just escape me. I'll forget it. Think of systematic theology like a puzzle in front of you. God knows what the puzzle is supposed to look like. God is allowing man, by the power of the Spirit, to look at his Bible and to, and to come up with a system that takes these and puts them in place, in, excuse me, in place so that we can understand these doctrines, whether it's the doctrine of redemption or the doctrine of sin. We can look over the totality of the Bible and go, okay, all right. I see this, and it goes there, and then, oh, I can't go there because I know this. So that's systematic theology. We're going to do that when we deal with the Ten Commandments. This time, we're going to do biblical theology. And you go, well, isn't the, it's a Bible, so what does that mean? Well, biblical theology is the chronological, historical understanding of theology or the study of God. So we're going to start in Genesis. And then we're going to move forward to Exodus so that you can see that, wait a second, this Sabbath thing, this Sabbath rest has been in there. I've been missing it. I didn't see it because I, I, I will read a little bit here on my daily devotion. I'll read a little bit here or Nick will preach a little bit here and a little bit there. And we don't see it in its totality. So we're going to take a tour of biblical the theology from Genesis to Exodus 12. And from this, we're going to see the Sabbath's original uh, uh, creation pattern. You're going to hear that word over and over, or that phrase, creation pattern. We're also going to see uh, that it was weakened in the fall. This pattern was weakened. And we'll see what, that, what it looks like and what it plays out to be. And then we're going to see a reestablishment of this pattern right here when God is explaining the Sabbath to his people in Exodus. So that's the, the kind of the layout. If you'll do me a favor and take your bulletin. We normally have a, a, a takeaway listed. Uh, if you look on the very back of the bulletin where the sermon outline is, you'll notice first you'll notice two things. Pastor Nick wrote a lot of stuff in this one. That's because... I want you to listen. My father was an expert storyteller. And with 10 children, he could, get, he could capture our attention at the Sunday table because that was a day that we all, were all together. 
and he would tell us stories, World War II stories. He loved that. He, he loved different uh, pieces of history. And he'd tell us stories, and we were just captured. I hope that today you'll be captured by this story, by this account, by this doctrine, by this concept, by this understanding of the Sabbath and see it. So just listen carefully. Don't, I, I, you certainly take notes, but I've written enough that you might just jot down a few words so you don't get off track and going, what was that long sentence he said? Don't worry about that. Just get the gist of what's going on here. So you see that there's more written in there for you, but also you'll notice that I didn't say takeaway underneath the, uh, the title there. I, I used the word ponder. And what I hope that we do after this sermon is, is we ponder, is there anything that needs to change as it relates to my observance of the Sabbath to Yahweh? And I don't know if there will be. There has been over my course of my walk with Christ, and maybe something that gets spoken today will cause it, uh, you to think, you know, I think we, I, could, I need to tweak this or tweak that. So that's what we're trying to get out of today's sermon, today's message from God. But let's take a, a, a peek into this biblical theology. We're going to start in Genesis. And um, if you want to have your Bibles or your phones ready to go, I'll take you to some specific passages, and sometimes I'll generalize, and I'll take on whole chapters, because I'm trying to move this forward. So <clears throat> as far as the background goes, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but in chapter 1 of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, it covers the six days of creation, not the seventh. And each of the days of creation endwise, there's a uh, there's a, a border, a delineation from one day to the next. It ends with this statement. And then there was evening and there was morning. The blank, fill in the blank, day. And, he, and Moses just moves forward under God's inspiration. Talks about day one, day two, day three. And then he, all of a sudden we end up in a rhythm and we hopefully we're hearing this and we're expecting to hear something similar to that on the seventh day. But let's read Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all of the host in them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested. The word rested uh, is sabbath, only it's, it's a verb, so it's sabbath, it would be. We know it as the Sabbath, a Sabbath rest. That's the the. The, uh, come on, Nicholas, the Hebrew word is Shabbat. We translate that as Sabbath, okay, or Sabbath. And, and the idea is that he rested or he ceased from that, idea, that activity. Not ceased from all activity. He ceased from creating. Okay, so let's continue on. On the seventh day, from all his work that he had done, so God blessed. What does that mean to bless? That means he designates his favor upon something I would like. I hope some, that's something you would like. That would be a good thing to have God designate his favor upon something. He blessed the seventh day, so he blesses the day, and made it holy. When you think holy, I want you to be thinking this aspect of holy. Certainly that it has a, a, an understanding of moral excellence, but that's not what's in focus here. Well, that's not the primary thing in focus here. It's the set-apartness, the otherness. This day is, has been blessed, and it's been set apart. It's different than every other day, this seventh day, this day of rest. Because on it, God rested, or Sabbath, 
from all his work that he had done. Well, as you look at your bulletin, you can see that we, I have listed out there three aspects of the Sabbath established at creation. So let's, let's take a look at this under bullet point one. It says, the Sabbath rest was always intended by God. So really, Nick? Oh, always? Yeah, let's go back all the way to the beginning. We just did. We looked at Genesis 2, 1 through 3, when he discussed, when he shared with, with mankind the, the truth of what happened on the seventh day and why he did what he did. Well, first we see an aspect of the, the Sabbath. It has a divine perpetuity. There's no reference to an end. There's no, and it was evening and it was morning. It has perpetuity, this seventh day. It has an everlasting nature to it, an ever ongoing nature to it, given at creation. In other words, it has a perpetual or eternal aspect, and I, I, this is a saying of Pastor Pete, and I like, he's very creative with his words, that is baked into the design as he likes to say it. It's part of it. The seventh day has an eternal aspect. But it also has a divine uniqueness. Now let me, let me see if I can get you to follow this thought. Days are naturally bounded by light and darkness. We know them as morning and evening. We saw that in the Genesis account of the first three days. That's a natural. When I say natural, there is something within, if I could use the word God's creation or nature, I hate that word because we can get off into so many goofy, new agey th thinking in that, but I'm just going to use it, um, that days are bounded by something God put in place in nature. We have light and we have darkness, and that's what bounds a day from one day to the next. Months are naturally bounded by the moon. We, when we have a full moon, that's an understanding of a new cycle, a new, a new a cycle of waxing and waning. And we know it to typically be about 30 days. Again, it's natural. That's the key I'm trying to point out here. And then you have years. Years are bounded by seasons. You have summer, fall, winter, and spring. And when you start to do it over again, you got a new year. So we see a natural or, or a creation type of bounding or identifying boundaries. Well, the, the week itself is uniquely bounded by God as a cycle of seven days patterned after what he did in creation. Ever noticed, ever wondered, how is it that the whole globe honors a seven-day week? Now, I, I do giggle twice in France's uh, history, France tried to go to a 10-day week. Didn't work out so well. Both times they got rid of it. It doesn't work. There is a rhythm that God has baked in to life itself. We, as his image bearers, live in a seven-day cycle. And, you, and, and you, hopefully you're going, huh, that, that's interesting. That's the one that's not tied to anything natural, per se. Furthermore, God made the, the seventh day unique by blessing it. He assigns or designates his favor. He makes it holy. And in other words, he sets it apart. He says, okay, these six days of creation are important. But this one, the seventh day, is so important, I'm going to make it distinct from the other ones. That should catch our attention. In taking such unique actions, God example for his image bearers, that would be you and me, 
the pattern of setting apart the seventh day, the Sabbath, as a unique day of rest. All right. So we need to understand, well, what is this rest thing? And this is where we get into the relational aspect. And you see it on your, on your bulletin. It's divine relational nature. Okay, God's state of rest is explicitly de- identified by way of, hey, I, I worked six days, I created for six days, and then I rested. But implied in the resting is I'm done with that. It's not that I'm sitting back and doing nothing. I'm now engaging with the creation I created. I'm done creating, and now I'm engaging. I'm engaging relationally with the creatures I, I created to engage with, the ones that look, when I say look like me, when it talks about we, we bear his image, we, can, we are called to rule and reign as he is a king. We have the ability to understand and communicate with him that no other creature has the ability to do. That's what it means that we're made in his likeness. We were given the role as God's representatives on earth. In fact, in uh, Genesis 1.28, it talks about you shall uh, subdue and have dominion. Subdue is I'm giving you a responsibility to rule and reign. And dominion is I've given you the authority. I am God. I give you my, a piece of my authority and say, do this over creation. Image me, the invisible God, you visible creatures in creation. And rule and reign as I would rule and reign if you weren't there, if I didn't create the image bearers that I have created. I'm working through you. So we have an appreciation that, okay, we can relate with our God when we relate to him on Sunday, or I'll put it this way, on the Sabbath, let me stick with that word, we have an understanding that there's a, a, a relationship that comes by way of what God has done with us or done for us. God has given us the ability to relate to him so that we can praise him, we can demonstrate honor to him, we can demonstrate by living out our design as image makers and therefore glorifying him. That's what we do when we relate to our God. It is something that was designed eternally in creation. But we also saw that it's unique in that God also created it in a one-week cycle and and set it apart and said, this day, this day, this seventh day is a day of rest. Well, let's take a look at point number two. A Sabbath rest has always been pursued by God's people. It was, it was interesting. I don't know. You know, sometimes weekly we assign out different duties as pastors. Pastor Pete had, and we're in our Sunday school. We have a, uh, we've shifted from what we were uh, uh, dealing with or being taught. Pastor Pete was teaching before on uh, the, the, uh, Descent by Christ, and that was a fascinating series. And now we're going through the books of, of the Bible, the Old Testament in particular. He did Genesis today. I couldn't have but help but laugh if he would have seen me uh, sitting at my chair. Some of what we are going to talk about is what he covered in Sunday school. Only in God's goodness, 
God's book, we all know this, we come to this book over and over again, and we see new facets of truth, new beauty when we read the same verses that we did before, and we didn't see that facet. It didn't sparkle that way. It sparkled the other way the last time we were there. That's the beauty of it. So if you're thinking when you hear some of this that, oh, I guess I can kind of tune out. This is Pastor Nick going over the same thing that Pastor Pete went in Sunday school. You're on the wrong radio frequency. Stay dialed in because you will see that God is a God who is an amazing God. His beauty is never ending. We can read the Bible and come back to it over and over again. Ours is a journey to understand rest and Sabbath rest in particular in the Bible. So we turn to first to Cain and Abel. And we look at, let me read to you Genesis 4 through uh, verses 3 through B, 4B. 3 through 4B. And the B just means it's, uh, actually I should have said 4A. Uh, because it just means I'm saying going with the first half of a verse. So well, you'll see a letter in there. Uh, occasionally someone will put it there. Let me read. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. By the way, anytime you see the word L-O-R-D in caps, you heard Brandon pronounce it that way. You'll hear me pronounce it. You'll hear most of the men pronounce it that way. It, it simply in the, in the Hebrew means, or would it be uh, pronounced Yahweh. And again, she bore her, his brother Abel. Now Abel was the keeper of the sheep, of sheep, excuse me, and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to Yahweh an offering. What is Cain doing? Cain is worshiping. He's bringing an offering. We had the fall occur with Adam and Eve. Now they have offspring, and we've got an offspring that is being, we're seeing what Pastor Pete was pointing out. We have a delineation. We're going to see two different lines of offspring. One that, according using the Genesis uh, wording, one that is from the seed of the serpent, meaning an offspring in total rebellion, and the other is the seed of the woman, which is where Christ is going to come through. It just means his off, her offspring, well, which is ultimately comes through Christ. So one is, is a lineage that favors righteousness. So we see here, Cain brought to Yahweh an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And we see, again, the real focus I want to show you here is we have two different lineages, two different representatives representing two different lines. One's a rebellious line, one's a righteous line. What do we know about Cain? He kills his brother. First murder in the Bible, right there. He kills his brother. We're only in chapter 4, and we've got a murder already in the story. Then you look at Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 to 24, and Pete was, uh, God bless Pete, he was making interesting uh, genealogies. If you can make genealogies interesting, God bless you, you've done a great job, and he did it today. He helped us see that those are, those are given an idea that the, story's being, the story is moving in a direction. And, and with that, we see in this genealogy, there are six, six generations listed here. From uh, it focuses on Cain to Lamech. Six is important. Six is the number of mankind's imperfection, his fallenness, his sinfulness. Interesting that God would lay out, God would make 
possible. God, when I say make possible, God would ordain, and therefore gives it a, God's the one doing and, and, and guiding and leading and orchestrating. God is the one that has six generations. So we're, what are the generations focusing on that in this genealogy? They're focusing on the fallenness of man. You start with Cain, who kills his brother, and by the time you get to, to uh, Lamech, the sixth in the line of generation, he kills a man for simply injuring him. That line is wicked and headed to total corruption. That's the point of, of bringing it up at that and identifying the sixth there. He wants basically to be worshipped himself. Don't anyone try and go cross me. You'll know my power, my fury, my revenge, my, my, my state of who I am in, in my corruptedness. So the question is begged after that genealogy. All right, we got a dead brother, Abel, who was the righteous one. How are we ever going to get the seed of the woman, the one who's going to produce the Savior, the one that, 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 that the Savior is going to come out of in order to save us? How are we going to get back to the rest that we experienced, or at least mom and dad experienced, Adam and Eve, in the garden? So armed with that question, we go and we move to Genesis 4, 25 to 26. And it reads this, if you'll follow along with me. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. Seth means appointed substitute or replacement. You're going to see that word appointed in the, in the sentence that follows because it's being used as a verb, although mom's using it, mom and dad are using it as a name for their son. For she said, mom said, God has, a, God has appointed, God has sethed for me another offspring instead of Abel. And for Cain, uh, for Cain killed him. Verse 26, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Interesting enough, Enosh means man in his frailty, his feebleness, his need for somebody outside of him is the picture going on him. And then it continues, at that time, people, well, what group of people are we talking about? We were talking about in the genealogy the group of evil people from Cain's line, and now we shifted to this replacement that replaces uh, uh, Abel, his, his righteous brother that Cain uh, killed. So we're talking about these people. What do these people do? These, these, uh, this line from righteousness, if you will. At, at that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. What we see is a continuation. Though uh, Abel has been killed, those that are, are righteous, those that are seeking after God's righteousness uh, are the ones that are seeking to worship God. When it says, call upon the name of Yahweh, most theologians agree that that means, well, I'll say it this way, all theologians agree that means worship. Some even go so far as to say that means corporate worship. I've seen a couple of examples where I go, I don't know if I can go to corporate. I can definitely agree with it always means that they worshiped. So then, chapter 5. So we're out of 4 now. We get to chapter 5. And now we're going to get our answer. Now we're going to get the answer. God's going to give us more in understanding how are we going to recover this rest that we lost, this relationship with God in the garden that's unhindered by sin. And he gives us the generations from Adam to Noah. And there's not six listed. There's ten. 
Ten's important. Ten is the understanding of authority or completeness. Normally in the Bible, most often in the Bible, it's by way of God coming, bringing to bear his sovereignty, his governing power over all of mankind. So that's what is being directed to. When you see 10 and you're a Hebrew, you would go, oh, this is interesting. This is going to have something to do with God's sovereignty, his authority, his power to bring about a completeness, to, to do so in some form of governance. So it says God sent Noah to foreshadow the one who would eventually bring rest. Do you know what the name Noah means? It means rest. Oh, isn't that fascinating? God is giving a picture there. He's going to bring one, but this one, interestingly enough, we as Christians know this. They didn't know it at the time. This one is only a foreshadow because this one's going to blow it. Noah is a foreshadow of Christ who can, is the only one that can bring us back an eternal rest. In the account of Noah, rest is ultimately accomplished by, this is interesting, ever wondered why we had a flood? Why'd God use a flood? It is accomplished by separation of good from evil. Hey, you, the righteous, Noah's family, get in the ark. And I'm going to close up that ark. And then I'm going to, and then I'm, that's going to bring the separation. And then I'm going to bring judgment upon evil. And evil is going to be wiped away by the flood. And there will be a form, not a perfect form, but a form of rest. Evil will have been removed from the world. So we see what God was, was doing through Noah, the one who was supposed to navigate, if you will, kind of the captain of the ship, although he's just on the ship, and really God is the captain. And we see that, again, that this is simply a foreshadowing of what Christ would do. So what does Noah immediately do upon exiting the ark? I wish, I wish sometimes in sermons that this would be dialogical and you guys could do this and I could give you, hey, you, go ahead and answer that question. Most of you have probably got an answer. As soon as he gets off the ark, he's building an altar and he is worshiping his God. He knows the blessing that God provided of that salvation by way of an ark and placing him in it, and he's getting off that ark now on dry ground, and the first thing he does is, I'm building an offer, and I'm worshiping my God, because only my God could have done what he did. And so we see that what I'm trying to show you is we're not into the Jews yet. I'm just talking about the people of the world at this time. They know in their heart of hearts what to do. It's inherent in them. It's almost like it's written on their hearts. We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 20. So, no, so Noah knows what he's supposed to do here. And he builds an ark. In Genesis 8, 20, it says, Then Noah built an ark to Yahweh and took some of, the, of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and, and offered burnt offering on the altar. Yeah, he worshipped. He worshipped rightly as he understood what it meant to, to worship. However, we got a problem with Noah. This is where it turns south. Noah, in chapter 9, he plants a vineyard. He's got lots of grapes in it. He harvests those grapes. He makes wine. He gets drunk on that wine. 
And the, the, this Adam-like Noah, I say Adam-like, he's on the face of the earth with only his family. There's no sin at this point. Certainly you could argue there's sin in their hearts. There's no outward sin manifested. I'll say it that way. We don't have a perfect replication of what was happened in the garden, but we have the beauty of the world, and he gets off, and it's, it's his family, and that's it. And what was Adam supposed to do? He was supposed to work the garden and keep it. And what does keep it mean? Keep it as identified in the, in the priestly line means you keep sin out. That's your role. Adam failed because what does he do? He allows Eve to talk to a serpent, and the serpent uh, convinces her, and she convinces him to take of the fruit and allow sin to enter in. So what happens to our drunk friend Noah when he's drunk and he's passed out? Sin takes place. And interestingly enough, when he comes to and understands that sin has taken place by one of his sons, what does he do just like God did in the garden? He pronounces a curse. He pronounces a curse on the lineage of his son, Ham. Just like God pronounced a curse. Interesting, God pronounced a curse, if you will, on the devil. Ham pronounces it on the seed, the lineage of the, of the, uh, or the offspring, if you will, metaphorically speaking, of Satan. We continue on. Understanding both of these, there's a parallel. Pastor Pete talked about it in Sunday school. We constantly see it. It's this, when Hebrew tells stories, when Hebrew gives narrative accounts, it does this. It talks in cycles, and it picks up, and the cycles get bigger. It's grabbing information from the past, adding information, and it cycles around. And then it grabs information from the past, and, it, and it, now it adds more. So when Hebrews think about stories, they're always looking for hyperlinks, as in our terminology, those little pieces that link back because it gives the current story greater understanding because there's a link to it. And they go, oh. For us, if we think like Hebrews, although we're Christians, we can see that Jesus Christ is the better Adam because he always, always obeyed. Jesus Christ never sinned. Jesus Christ is the better Noah because Jesus Christ brought about a rest that was eternal. He, he not only, Jesus Christ, not only paid for the sins of Adam and all of us, Jesus Christ went a step, excuse me, he not only lived the perfect life, he paid the sins that all of us have sinned. So he, in that, in that sense, he has made it possible for us to re-engage, to be reconciled back to our God, that we can experience a taste of the rest that was, that was once in the garden. That's what we get to experience. You see this thread of rest continuing forward, and we can thank Jesus that he is the one that ultimately makes it possible. Though in our account, in our biblical theology we're walking through, it's not there as yet. I find it interesting. If you'll look at the second coming of what Jesus did, you'll find some connections, some links back, direct links to the flood. 
Again, Jesus is completely obedient. He secures our wrath through his atoning death and then righteously separates upon his return. We hear in Revelation that Jesus is going to separate out the wheats from the tear, the goats from the sheep. He's going to separate out, and then what is he going to do? He's going to judge. Only Jesus Christ can go a, a step further. When he judges and removes sin, sin will never return. He casts sin out so it can never repeat. We will never have a cycle that has sin as one of its aspects. Praise be to God on that. Well, then we get to Genesis 11 in our understanding this, this biblical theology tour of this theme or this concept, this construct, this, this doctrine of, of Sabbath rest. And when uh, chapter 11 comes, we see that it records the rebellion of the people again. Remember, Noah had one of his own relatives. Noah had one, one of his own sons bring the sin in to the picture. And by the time we get to chapter 11, we've got what we had in chapter 6. The world is covered with people that all they want to do is sin. Sin and violence is their nature. This time's account in this circle is the Tower of Babel. The, the Tower of Babel, I want you to consider in this aspect, the Tower of Babel is the world's greatest coordinated anti-rest attempt. They're coming together not to worship God. Pastor Pete said it in Sunday school. They're coming to overthrow God. We're building a tower up and we're storming the gates of heaven and we don't want you and we want to be God. That's what we say every time we sin. We don't say it explicitly, but that's what I also, maybe I could say it this way. That's what our sin makes the statement of when we, when we don't want to obey God. That's what they were doing. They were demonstrating, oh, we're going after this rest thing. Oh, this is the anti-rest. We're doing it not your way. We're not worshiping you. We're worshiping us and what we're capable of. Mankind came together to corporately overthrow God, not to worship him. And what does God do? He confused their speech so they couldn't communicate with one another. And that's where we get the multitude of speeches or languages. It's interesting. That's only a season. God has stopped the anti-rest for a season. Revelation tells us we know that there's a day when Satan will be allowed to harness the corporateness of the world and come with everything he has after God's people. But that time is under the control of Jesus Christ himself, or I should say God as a, the triune God would probably be more theologically correct. All right, then we get to chapter 12. Chapter 12 is the chapter that's the hinge pin of Genesis. It's where everything shifts now. And everything shifts, and God says, the people that were spread out over the earth from the Tower of Babel in punishment. Those people are, are left unto themselves, are left unto the fallen angels that want to rule and reign over them and want them to worship them. And God says, I'll take one person, and I'm going to covenant with that one person, and I'm going to bring about salvation through that one person. He does that, and that person's name is Abraham. And I want you to listen to, I'm just going to give you numbers. I want to give you the numbers listed 
in the Bible. I'm not going to give you every verse. I'm not going to give you any verses. If you want, you can come up to me afterwards. It would take too much time. So these are the God covenants. And with that covenant, there's an, a, a, even a deeper conviction of I need to honor God. He initiates covenants. Covenants aren't us going, oh God, I can't wait to have a covenant with you. And, God, and we call down God somehow. God crashes into reality to impose, if I, if I can use those words, his will, thank God, because his will is a gracious will, to covenant with a man that does not deserve his forgiveness, his relationship with him, and says, I'm going to use you, your lineage, I'm going to create a, a nation, and I'm going to take from that nation one person that will take the blessing to the, all the world, thank Jesus Christ, so that all the world will be taken back by God in a sense that every tongue and nation will be represented in salvation. That doesn't mean everyone will be saved. It means every tongue and nation will be represented in salvation. So let's see how many of God's chosen from the lineage of Abraham actually worship. Well, we've got three patriarchs. Let's look at all three. Abraham, six times. It's listed where he is either listed as building an altar, either calling upon the name of the Lord, or worshiping, or offering an offering. Six times. We've got Isaac, one time. Jacob, two times. I think Jacob is fascinating because Jacob fights it. Oh, does Jacob fight it? He wants to do things his way. He, wants to, he lives up to his name as trickster. And God finally personally wrestles with him. And what does he want from God? He wants to know his name. Isn't that fascinating? The name, what name shall I call upon? He already knows it. And that's kind of what God does with them there. It's just fascinating how, how worship is, or, or, and, and rest is tied into that. And so we get done with Jacob. We have two. And then we come to the Israelites. We've moved all the way ahead to Exodus. And in Exodus 4.31, uh, we get to a place where it says this. And the people believed, and, they were, and, and when they heard that Yahweh had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, because they were crying out, we can't deal with this. We have a whole nation that has, has us in slavery, and bondage. We can't do it ourselves. They finally come to that place. They call out to God. And, and excuse me, uh, they heard that Yahweh had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction. And what they do? They bowed their heads and worshiped. Even these Israelites that are 400 years removed from the patriarchs still know what to do. They still have that inward knowledge of what to do. They don't know exactly how to do it. They don't even know the timing. That's part of what is lost in the fall. The seventh day, we don't get information that, they, that Abraham came to the seventh day and he worshiped. Isaac came to the seventh day. No, we don't get that. That is lost. The timing was lost. It's kind of that, that dimming effect that, that sin has upon our eyes. It has upon our ears. It has upon our hearts. Where that which we inherently know is right is sometimes dim to the point where we don't get it right away. But we still know ultimately what is right. Well, then again, in, in Exodus 12, 27, we find the Israelites worshiping. And then our last point here. Uh, uh, on your handout. A Sabbath was always intended to be patterned after creation. You want proof that it was patterned to be after creation? We're, do, we're taking care of that proof by looking at this through biblical theology, by looking at this chronologically, by looking at this historically. Look at Exodus 16.23. It says this, He said to them, 
This is what Yahweh has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest. What is God doing? He's giving additional revelation. His people are not worshiping on the right day. His people are worshiping, whether it's the patriarchs or those that have come in, in the midst of that, are, are, they're all over the place on when they're worshiping. So he's giving them out of graciousness to them, reminding them of the pattern I demonstrated in creation. He said to them, this is what Yahweh has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of rest, a, a holy, in other words, solemn Sabbath to Yahweh. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. Notice the doubling of the duties on the sixth day. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept until morning on the seventh day. And then jump over to Exodus 16, 29, and 30. See, Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. Oh, this is cool. He is giving a lesser form of what was always intended in the garden and what they had in the garden. They get to taste and see that the Lord is good by participating in this day of Sabbath, this day of rest. See, Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go outside of this place. That's giving the picture of, look, Stick to, don't do the common affairs of life on the seventh day. What does the common affairs look like to us? It could be baking. It could be a whole host of things we do as, as quote, errands. It's not necessarily the work we do by, by whether we work in a, in a factory or we work by, by way of a, um, we are an attorney or a doctor or something like that. No, we have both things addressed here. You have the, the double, the, the, the idea of ceasing from, as I cease from my creation work, you cease from your work to, to, that I use through you to provide sustenance, and you don't do the common things by way of stay in your house. Now, it doesn't mean to us stay in our house. It doesn't mean that. But it's just saying those common affairs, this is supposed to be a set-aside day, something distinctly unique, and it's for our benefit. We get to relate to God in the way that was intended. We get to taste what that, that looks like, what that, that was in the garden. So now let's finish with this. Look at your, your bulletin on the back of the, the, the outline. I want you to see this under, bull, under point number three. The Sabbath rest with its worship was returned to the seventh day. God calls it to be on the seventh day. Now we're going to talk about uh, when we get to the, to the fourth commandment dealt with in Exodus 20, we're gonna, I'm going to do a systematic approach, and we're going to see that some people still refer, some Christians still refer to the, to, the, to the day that we now recognize as the first day of the week, not the last day of the week. In other words, it was moved from Saturday, as we know that, to because of Christ's work, to Sunday. He, Christ brings in, Christ ushers in new creation. You and I are new creations in Christ Jesus. And that now becomes the Sabbath. But as, excuse me, the Christian Sabbath, if you will, or if you want to refer to it as what we do more commonly now, in Revelation 1.10, it's the Lord's Day. If you'll notice, I try not to communicate with you by calling today Sunday. You know why I do that? For my own benefit. As a reminder that this is God's Sabbath and it's set apart and I need to treat it as such. And hopefully, some of you will go, why do you always call it the Lord's Day or the Christian Sabbath? Why don't you just call it Sunday? Because I'm trying to work towards a different place of reverence 
for this day. I'm trying to understand and, and, and live it in my life that this represents not only the rest we have that, and the, the benefits of that, be way beyond that, is who worked to accomplish it? Who brought this rest? Jesus Christ, my Savior. Me setting apart this day as different, not only is it an instruction by God, but it glorifies Jesus, my Savior. So I do things differently on this day. We re- the Sabbath has been returned to the seventh day. It has been returned to its, co- its corporate nature with all God's people observing it instead of a patriarch here and a patriarch there and, 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 and uh, other people we saw before the p- patriarchs. And lastly, it's returned it to its holy, set-apart essence whereby the common, com- the common duties and affairs of life have ceased and worship of God is exclusively, or as close as possible, exalted. So I leave you with the question, is there anything that needs to be changed or to to change as it relates to my observance of the Sabbath to Yahweh? I am not the Yahweh police, nor is Pastor Pete, nor is Pastor PJ, nor is Pastor Mark. This is up, up to we as Christians to understand what God calls us to do, and then we have the blessing of being able to experience it. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for the clarity of your, of your word. We thank you that you have given us this progressive understanding and ultimately gave us words. We didn't have to look at a pattern. We didn't have to go by what we just know in our hearts are hearts to do. You more explicitly gave it to us in very words that you have given to your people. This is a Bible, the Old Testament and New Testament. We're understanding how it's all connected, and we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the work of Jesus Christ. For we know that we could not regain, have rest reestablished without that work. All praise, honor, and glory be to your son's name, Jesus Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.